Dispatch Publishing presents Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Naqui. I see you are taken aback, Francis. Not that you are surprised. Clergy really are by sin made manifest. But maybe you feel shock at the closeness of it. That evil can be so utterly banal, so near the surface of things, and yet not be seen. Can you imagine if Ram had signed a contract with his employers? I, Ram Kumar, shall in exchange for money, but not that much money, take this child from his home slash people slash culture slash family and deposit said child in a place where his body slash mind slash soul will be exploited for an indeterminate amount of time until he shall succumb to injury slash death or escape and in the event of the last will result in his injury slash death. If I should steal, slash, lie, slash, deceive, slash, er, uh, slash, dilly-dally, or otherwise fail my employers in any way, I will fear for myself. A devil's bargain, if there is one. As for young Mohsin, he fades from our story, pulled back for a time into a numbing life of servitude. No education, no prospects for a future. One of a few billion small tragedies unfolding day in and day out, with no one ever standing up and declaring, full stop. I surprise even myself with this gushing lament. Becoming numb to stories like Mohsin's is the default for me, and I hate it. It's shocking how difficult mustering sympathy can be when one has suffered personally. Are you hungry? Let's part ways with our likely pair as they grapple with the implications of this new discovery. I can recount what happens next, but I fear not without ice cream. We rarely get a treat like this in the MC home, so I will indulge as we spiral down the drain to the sewers of this world. Come this way. There's a vendor around the corner who is wrapping up his prayer mat and finishing his obligatory namaz. He has hardly had a sale all day. We shall be the hand of God to him. The likely pair, exhausted by the new revelations of Ram's misdeeds, but energised by Mr. Shaji's assistance, push on in search of Constable Singh. There is justice to achieve for Manoj's murder of Ram, but also for the victims of the sordid trade that both perpetuated. The address Sister holds in her hand corresponds to a farmhouse that is far, relatively speaking, meaning they would arrive at a late hour even if all the stars obeyed the astrologer's command and aligned. She also doubts Constable Singh's willingness to drop everything to come to their aid. No, they wait for the morning. Farmhouse, I should explain. To you, Francis, it conjures a pastoral scene from your Argentinian homeland, or maybe a humble, whitewashed frontier home from a cowboy film. Farmhouses in Delhi are nothing of the sort. Decades ago, in what used to be the city's outer edge where agriculture was still common, 
landowners were allowed to build simple residences to manage farms. Soon the rich saw an opportunity, built up acreage and turned the agrarian land into sprawling estates, 7,000 of them by some counts. In the loosest sense that grand mansions are a house and a handful of shrubs and topiaries constitute a farm, does the label cover the farmhouses of today. What flavour of ice cream would God's representative on the earth prefer? Strawberry is it? Alas, the shake of our poor ice cream wala's head means no such luck. Chocolate? Aha! My choice too. Here, hand him the coins. I'll give him a bit extra to take home to his family. What's that? Oh yes, I'll interpret. He just said that God would protect you. Let's stroll back to the main road. So the likely pair will find Constable Singh absent from his police box. With you, for you always, out on the prowl. GB, that beast, is waking from its daytime slumber and its appetite is huge. So many men coming and going, like termites, degrading everything as they sate themselves. As a matter of course, our Singh wields his large thwacking staff with fervour. Indian law enforcement, you are something to behold. Indian justice, you are the exception, not the norm. When justice is actually meted out by our police and courts, how we rejoice. Of course, bribes paid to overturn verdicts on appeal sour our adulation. All while petty thieves and the completely innocent rot in prison because they don't have the money to see their cases advance. I digress. This cone is melting too quickly. The likely pair do find Singh. He is about to thwack a poor rickshaw driver and that man is grateful for the constable's distraction. They confront Singh, pull him to the side. They reveal the name and general location provided by Mr. Shaji. Singh is pleased but demands the address. Sister refuses. She doesn't want him going without them. He shrugs. Hearing that it's a farmhouse warms his belly. Even if Manoj is nowhere to be found, he can line his pockets by threatening the rich owner with some made-up charges. Singh promises a crack team will join him in making the arrest. Sister knows he'll show up in a Maruti gypsy, crammed with three off-duty policemen, and they'll intimidate their way inside with the one gun they share between them. The likely pair will call Singh at 7am the following morning and reveal the address. They will then confront what they find together. And that is that. Your corn is finished. Do you need something else to line your stomach? No? Considering what's coming, Maybe that's for the best. Mita and sister return to number 201 and try to rest for the night, despite the heavy cloak of despair within. They will not succeed. Both are haunted by the sight of the motorcycle, the flying monkey, Adiba lying on the pavement, him being loaded into a truck, him disappearing. Besides this, there is the anticipation. Will they catch Manoj? Will this amount to a fruitless step in their investigation? The end of their investigation? 
What will Singh do? Can he be trusted? All manner of imagined scenes play out, some ending with success, most ending with disaster. Sister erects her altar again and tries to pray, but worries crowd out her heaven-aimed words. Mita, exhausted, eventually falls into fitful sleep after staring at her purse in the corner like it's a time bomb. You must be tired too, Pope. But there can be no rest for us. Not just yet. We must leave these two for now. Our place is back in the belly of GB. Here's a chai to boost your strength and fortify your spirit, for our place is with Constable Singh as he winds down his beat and keeps a most unfortunate meeting. After encountering Sister Amita, his mind turned from his next thwacking target to his son and the TV he will buy him, his wife and the jewellery he will buy her. What's this? A son? A wife? Like so many of our stories players, Constable Singh is a very real person with a very real past. He does not float along only to enter and exit our story at whim or cast a nefarious shadow. He lives in a small, respectable apartment not so far from the Azadpur metro stop, has a respectable wife, a respectable young son who came late after many years of trying and hoping. His son still loves him because he only sees the uniform and doesn't know much of the man who fills it. Singh dreams of better things, of promotions, or better yet, breaking into some new market and cresting the next wave of technological innovation. He is old enough to have seen the last two decades' revolutions and realise his chances at wealth have come and gone, but he pretends otherwise, living in ignorance of the fact he is a middle-aged man sitting in a police box, watching his body slip into lumpiness while his dreams deform like a block of melting ghee. His abuses of power are a drug that satiates temporarily. When he manipulates one of the countless girls into sex on GB, or when he extracts a few rupees, his ego inflates and he feels strong, capable, a man of volition. Then he returns home to a wife who knows what he's done without knowing the specifics, and a boy who sees his father as a hero. He can hardly meet his boy's eyes. And so he drinks, unable to keep up the charade, hoping for that one karmic turn of events that will deliver himself from himself. He believes that opportunity may have just been handed to him by a prostitute he lusts after and a funny-looking old nun. He makes a phone call, but the din of the street prevents you and I from eavesdropping. There he goes, on the move again. Where to? Who to? All is soon revealed to none other than Latika. You remember her. Mita's adversary for the affections of our young Ram? Ram was taken by Latika's looks, holding them in higher esteem than Mita's, but she had an insufferable haughtiness. I won't tell Mita this, but Ram had initially hoped his flight into a new future was to take place with Latika. He told her his secrets, hoping that confiding would show he trusted her and win her over. Secrets that Singh himself has learned. You see, 
Singh is no fool, merely corrupt. He's acquainted with many of the gangster types that lay claim to GB and its environs and is wise enough to only extract the margins due him. He expended some genuine effort in seeking out Ram's killer because he perceived it as tied to his rational self-interest. He found Latika, interrogated her, if you get my meaning, learned a delightful secret that could give him some leverage to turn this situation to his advantage. After a brief scuffle with her pimp that ends in, not surprisingly, a thwack, he has Latika in his grip, forces her down the stairs and out onto the street. She struggles, but only enough to register her discontent. Latika, you may be surprised to learn, had not lied to Mita. Ram indeed visited her shortly before he died. Worry over some grand problem was eating him up, and Mita could not be his confidant. To her, he was a hero, a rescuer. Rama to her captive Sita. He had an image to maintain. So he shared what haunted him openly with Latika, about how everything was spiralling out of control. Constable Singh and Latika wait in an alley that Singh knows to be quiet. You can see the type of place it is as you step over spent syringes and torn gutka tobacco sachets gathering dust. Painted on the wall is a public service announcement. Condom ek, suraksha anek. One condom, many protections. The residents who live in choles above close their windows tight to protest what goes on below and to keep out the distinct odour of evaporated urine. Singh tries to joke with Latika, goad her for a kiss, but she has a unique power. She is able to make men feel small and weak without uttering a word, and she is using that gift now. Constable Singh, attempting to take it blithely, blathers on his phone again to round up his fellow officers for tomorrow morning. Latika looks up at the few stars visible through the night haze, cursing Singh and Ram for getting her into this. He's arrived. Ah, Ravinder, Singh exclaims. He closes his flip phone mid-call and moves to embrace the man. I see you tremble, Francis. It is precisely who you think it is. The one called Ravinder is none other than our tubby villain. He to phone known only as the Gunda. Ravinder offers no smile in return. He looks haggard. He has changed clothes, but wears another suit exactly like the one from earlier in the day. Make it quick, he tells Singh. Of course. Who's she? A friend, Constable Singh says. Latika grimaces and, yes, that's quite right, that's her thumb between her teeth, flicked out. I'm sure you can guess what the gesture means, Francis. Singh pinches her cheek and laughs. Ravinder looks bored. I don't have the money. You don't? Singh doubts this very much. All I have are the nun's underwear. They put on a good show, that's all I can say. Constable Singh rethinks his approach. Well, there's always more money to be found. You seem good at it. Just tell me what you want, Singh. I want a partnership. Short term. Stop wasting my time. My friend here has given me some information that concerns you. 
That concerns your boy in hiding, Manoj. Ravinder listens. Singh, emboldened, steps forward. We know about the bodies. Bodies? The bodies. Eighteen, disposed of on the road between here and Lucknow. The press reported, local police have sought the culprits, all without luck. Corpses simply abandoned in a poor farmer's field. A small tragedy, and? Your boy, Ram, liked to visit my friend over here. Liked to divulge all manner of information. He told her things. Ravinder, Constable Singh, places his hand on the man. I am going to find Manoj. Tomorrow morning, the nun and the whore will lead me to him. Oh, what if he's not there? If he's not there... I and my chums will break heads together until he turns up. Ravinder reflects. Constable Singh comes close again. Ravinder can smell butter chicken on his breath. Our deal, Singh says. You recover your money. I find Manoj. You tie up your loose ends. I solve 18 to 19 killings. You are left out of it all. Interesting? Ah. Not yet finished. You pay me half of what you take back. Not possible, Singh. We all have our overseers. Then you miss out. I'll get my man, and I'll take all of the cash. He'll make enemies. I'll be promoted and moved out of this hellhole. She's the only one who knows about this. Ravinda turns and addresses Latika directly. You've told no one else. Why would I now? Only makes more trouble for me. Already I'm having to wander around at night with Mada chodes like you two. Ravinda gives a half-hearted sideways nod. I see I don't have a choice. Constable Singh smiles. Excellent. The nun will be calling me to give me the address. I'm going to meet them there tomorrow. They'll surely have the money with them. I can meet you after we have Manoj in. Constable Singh slumps to the ground. Ravinder has fired a shot. Latika springs up, terror tugging at her features. I'm sorry. Ravinder fires again at her. He shoves his gun in his overstretched waistband and walks over to already dead Singh to pluck his wallet and take his phone. He sighs, turning it over slowly in his palm and walks back onto the main road, looking both ways before crossing. Nineteen. In 1960, in her 21st year, Hira ran away. Walter's note had urged her to visit a mystery destination over the weekend. She had vacillated about going. She knew this was about far more than an overnight trip. It likely meant committing permanently to one of her three paths, Indian domesticity, a much-travelled road, the church, mysterious but also mundane, or a relationship with this magnificent American, utterly unpredictable. Hira, a bit dizzy with excitement, made up her mind. She convinced her parents she was to travel for the weekend with her friend Anita's family. Her parents said yes. Hira met him at the railway station and, with a radiant smile, he revealed their destination, Jaipur, 
a city she had never visited, just several hours from Delhi that brimmed with legendary forts and palaces. She felt peace beyond all understanding as they made themselves comfortable on the train in first-class seats. That lasted all of five minutes. She felt judging eyes upon her in the railway car. Guilt set in, and Walter, instead of intuiting it, tried harder to make her crack a smile. This drew more attention. The conversation remained halting as Hira struggled with her lie, imagining her decision to come as setting concrete, soon to trap her. Walter retreated into himself, possibly dreading the fiasco this weekend might become. She watched Walter, staring out the window at wheat fields slipping past, and felt an inordinate amount of love for the man. Suddenly, a sense of surety descended. Damn all! She was here. She made this decision. She would own it. Hira touched his arm. He turned and smiled. It turned into a day of such beauty and perfection, it would haunt her. They travelled by rickshaw up out of Jaipur to the Red Fort. It was a majestic old thing built into the mountainside, and they rode up the long stone road to the entrance on the back of a bobbing painted elephant. When around others, she posed as Walter's tour guide, making up absurd historical facts that sent them into fits of laughter. They let their hands brush, and each touch was electric. In a remote corner of the labyrinthine fort, away from all others, they kissed, repeatedly. There was no getting carried away, no lustful passion, just kind, gentle, respectful kissing. After a picnic lunch packed in tiffins by Walter's house help, they headed back to the city. They drove past the Jal Mahal, a palace in Man Sagar Lake that appeared to float magically above the calm waters. They wandered around shops famous for their blue pottery, and Walter bought her a small lidded box, perfect for a ring. You might need this some day, he said. She accepted it bashfully. By late afternoon, drunk with love, Walter sprang the greatest surprise of all upon her. Back in Jaipur's centre, they stood before the gates of the remarkable city palace. It was a grand thing by all accounts, but showed wear in the thirteen years since the Rajput kingdom came to an end and the extended royal family fell on hard times. So unfortunate we can't enter, Hira said, a bit glum. Let me see what I can do, Walter said, and walked up to the main gate. He spoke to the guard, but ultimately needed Hira to interpret, ruining the surprise. Walter knew a prince, had become friends with him in Delhi. He and Hira were to meet him and stay here for the night as his guests. Hira could hardly breathe. The prince, Yashwant, welcomed them with a hearty embrace for Walter and a wink at Hira. As they walked the grounds and Yashwant gave them a tour, Walter took her hand and held it unabashedly. They stared in wonder at the Mubarak Mahal and Chandra Mahal, each new palace inside the walls more captivating than the last. The prince cracked jokes and laughed with them all the way, spouting trivia about the home and his family's eccentricities in his finely cultivated Oxbridge accent. Not all was perfection, 
Walter and Yashwan did most of the talking, as Hira felt sheepish in her simple sari and with her Indian-accented English. She perceived more judgmental stares from the palace staff in unguarded moments. Or were these only imagined? They took a rest and the men enjoyed gin and tonics while they sat in an ornate drawing room. Soon it was time for dinner. After the meal, for which the prince apologised, too simple, he said, followed by a dismissive wave and surly stare, there had been much more drinking on his part, he urged them to play for him. This was the price for their lodging. Pull out all the stops, was his exact slurred expression. Hira apologised. She had not brought any music to read from. I came prepared, Walter said, retrieving pages and pages of compositions from his suitcase. The pair traded melodies for a few hours while the prince downed brandies. His look was distant and sublime. The classical stuff gave way to an extended jazz medley by Walter. He sang show tunes and Hira marvelled. She had never heard him sing, and his voice was a lovely instrument all its own. Yashwant proclaimed Walter had knocked his socks off. Despite not wearing any socks, Hira felt it an appropriate sentiment. Her urge to love this man was unlike anything she had felt before. Yashwant retired in a conspicuous daze, and Walter and Hira were left to climb the grand stairwell and retire to their conjoined bedrooms. Hira unpacked her few things and prepared for bed, touching upon her rosary buried under her nightclothes. She had not realised she'd brought it and tucked it away again. The sight of it was so jarring in this place of fading opulence. She took it out again, looking at it for a time, and then at the tops of her hands, so tired from their hours of playing. She ran the beads through her fingers and prayers came despite herself. She was breathing heavily, wondering how she would ever fall asleep tonight, tomorrow or in the months to come. Deep in thought, a timid knock on the door complicated everything. I will not go into the particulars. It's not to say they aren't important or scandalous or chaste. It's just that I was never told what took place. These were details that only Hira or Walter could reveal. Here's what I do know. The next day, the prince bid them farewell and they boarded the 8am return train to Delhi. Walter had love in his eyes, had begun talking about their future together, with the unrestrained use of the subjunctive. She held his hand all the while, a brazen act, and nodded and nodded and nodded. When she returned home, her parents asked her how her time in Jaipur had passed with Anita's family. Lovely, she said with a smile, the best. She went to her room and penned a short letter before returning to tell her parents an alternate version of the trip. The next morning, before sunrise, she left that letter on her bed and sneaked out of the house, her small bag packed, ready to begin her aspirancy with the missionaries of charity. The hour is early, much like that day decades ago when sister left her former life behind. We travelled down with the likely pair, down an empty GB, past Ajmeri Gate, down into the bowels of the metro station, 
the same one Mita ran through with such visions of happiness and joy not a week ago. Buy our tickets. I'll pay for you, Pope. Go through the security line. I can hardly believe the police wanted to look under your cap. Our train arrives. The car is full of day labourers from Yamuna Pushta and Naglamachi, mostly men, but some women too. Mita and sister sit together on two seats that a pair of young men kindly vacate. No such courtesy for us this time, I'm afraid. They must have thought the likely pair were mother and daughter. Touching. They sit there quietly for a time. Stations come and go. INA, Green Park, House Khas. Out of nowhere, Mita asks the question. What if we failed today? Sister deliberates for a time before answering with words pulled from her past. Anything worth doing is worth failing at. We have done what is asked of us, pursued it to the end. Sister whispers something else to Mita, and Mita grunts, a small smirk coming to her face. The train's rumble soon carries Sister off to sleep, but not before she takes Mita's hand in her own. Her head slumps against Mita's shoulder, Amita lets it remain as she slips into reverie. They had left the quarter quietly. Just before, sister had entered Adiba's room to tell Gina that they would go together to pick up Adiba's ashes later that day. Gina made sister promise. I will have an announcement once you return, Gina said. Tell the girls, only them. Most certainly, sister replied. Mita had spent the night adrift. She did hope they'd find Manoj today, but it was not out of loyalty to Ram. She had tried to be forgetful of the facts, but they screamed too loudly. He slept with others, lied about his home, his past, his work. He was a low-level criminal dealing in drugs. And what about the small boy with the hair lip and his ghastly accusations? For all of her issues with sister, it is curiosity and a desire for justice for the victims of Rama Manoj's work that saw her rise early and board the metro, her purse fully packed and in hand. Whatever happened at the farmhouse, she was ready to exit the life she leads for good. With her head forced to remain looking forward to accommodate sister, Mita watches a young family. Each parent holds a small child. All four are asleep. She notices the cracked skin of the father's sandaled feet, the children dressed in clothes with two long sleeves and the wife with holes worn in her third-hand gara sari. They know every comfortable crook and soft edge to steal just a bit more rest before facing the day. So serene, so gentle they are. It's not very long before the train halts at another station and they rise and exit. It is almost like a vision was granted her, a glimpse of the hardness of their lives. But then there was also a hope emanating from them. They are together, despite all. They have one another. She finds herself praying for them, wherever they might be going, whatever they might be doing, and the prayer simply flows generously and without hesitation. Mita doesn't understand the feelings rising in her as she lifts her arm and places it around sister. A look of profound worry weighs upon her features. 
it raises a question. How does Meeta plan to make an exit when such a thing depends on money? Ah, you're a canny one, Pope. Maybe that isn't the question. You've seen the hints. Ravinder, a.k.a. The Gunda, is still in pursuit of the missing money, even though he nicked sister's case. Ergo, the case did not contain the money. Ergo, the money was withdrawn at some earlier time without sister's knowing. Who had the motive and opportunity? The problem with Mita's theft is she has no idea the misery it will bring her. But that's a sad tale, the thread of which we'll pick up later. More stations. Malvia Nagar, Saket. Little lights on a board flicker out with each stop. The train glides along, delivering them past the great brick tower of Kutab Minar, so stark against the rolling greenery below. Before long, a voice calls Chatarpur and Mita Rao's sister. We've arrived. What's this? Sister Blinks adjusts her glasses. We're here. So be it. She rubs her eyes and then takes Mita's hand again. Mita sees how sapped of energy Sister is as they alight. Mita takes her arm, gives her support. There is a subtle resistance, and somehow Mita intuits it is not against Mita's help, but because Sister is being pulled towards what is dangerous and fearful. Can you see what I can see so plainly, Francis? Sister is journeying from Gethsemane to Golkotha, a place of certain reckoning. Mita tries to reassure her in whispers. Manoj may not even be there. Singh will take him away. We don't have to fear for ourselves. Sister simply nods and nods and nods. I can see you wish to reach out to Sister Francis, to bless her, to fortify her with words of hope, a holy kiss, an anointing of oil. You must resist these urges. This must play out as it will. This is the past, after all. Fixed, inflexible, immutable. Here, board this rickshaw just as Sister and Mita climb into another. We'll arrive within minutes. The farmhouse's walled gate is a strange sight. The road is mostly vacant, running along a line of enormous compounds owned by rich and sometimes famous individuals. They are all tall walls well-kept from the outside, perfectly hiding what is behind. But not 25 Falodi Kalam Marg, the home of Sharmila Ji, who Mr. Shaji has led them to. Her gate is marred by flaking paint, and its two halves bulge outward from a past collision with the car. Sister takes out Adiba's mobile phone. 6.30am reads its display. Do you think Singh will come through? Mita asks. Sister dials the officer's number in answer. We're here, Constable Singh. Mita looks around a bit as Sister relays the address and hangs up. He says he should be here within the hour, Sister says. He's feeling a bit sick, but he'll be ready. That's bad for us, Mita says. We should have called sooner. The sun is already blazing. No way we can wait and get away from it. This is how I wanted it. It gives us time to talk to Manoj, assuming he's here and they let us in. 
I am quite certain they will. I have met the owner. Mita is newly hurt by this refusal to disclose. You met the owner? Sister nods, ever so briefly. I realized it during my prayers last night. Mita stands there, mouth gaping, expecting more explanation. Sister looks about, apparently unwilling to give it. We're partners, Mita says. You need to tell me such things. Sister's eyes flash. I only have suspicion and conjecture. No need to bother you if I am proven to be mistaken. Mita's temper flares and simmers. She begins pacing as sister activates an intercom on a nearby pillar. It squawks to life. Yes, what do you want? Grumbles a man's voice. Sister leans in close. Malhotra Saib, I believe. The question is met with silence. The police are on their way this very instant, sister says. If you have any hope of escaping their visit without being handcuffed, you had better let me talk to Sharmilaji. The man forces a laugh. I am Sister Shanti of the Missionaries of Charity, and you will let us in. We know about your guest. The lady is asleep. Wake her. I don't know if I can. Do your best. The sun out here is burning us alive. The intercom had already been cut. It takes nearly two minutes. They can hear what sounds like laboured hustling and several commands yelled by Malhotra. A few barks echo in an ill-timed chorus and Malhotra can be heard inserting keys in locks, sliding iron bars. I hate dogs, sister says, maybe to herself and trembles briefly. Mita still stews, considering whether she should take radical action and simply leave sister behind. As the gates open, she knows this is no option. Malhotra's turban forehead and eyes protrude. Mita fixates on the impressive bushes of his eyebrows. It's you, he says. It is. Sister puffs herself up. Take us to your lady, and I would like water for my friend and I. I told you, she is not well, especially not this morning. Sister doesn't acknowledge the remark, simply barges in. She stares at the dogs, grateful they're tied up. Malhotra gestures. They're gentle, we keep the dogs for their barks alone. Each German shepherd rests on its haunches and does an anxious little dance with their front paws, flashing their canines as they pant. They are medium-sized creatures, wearing matching red collars and glossy and lovely, depending on who you ask. Mita keeps her distance, hugging her purse. Malhotra's gaze remains fixed upon this newcomer. Sister looks over the estate as she approaches the main door. Vines crawl over gates and the grass is a yellowed field of weeds. There is an unused swimming pool with all manner of scum extending along its sides. The main house was surely grand in its heyday, but its white had mutated into shades of curdled cream. A small pool house of matching style sits off to the side and looks like a mopey child on time out. Malhotra intuits sister's disapproval. Too much work for one person, he mutters, as he leads the unwelcome guests. 
the dogs retreat to the pool house's overhang to lie in an ever-narrowing band of shade. They pass the old ambassador, the only other thing well-kept besides the dogs. It dawns on sister, the car's condition is because it is the one thing shown to the outside world. Malhotra opens the door. He gives a pained creak. Mem Saib, he calls. No answer. A ballad, all classical singing and sitar and tablas, wafts from a corner of the house. Meeta takes in the interior. Old marble tile chipped in places, grimy hand and paw prints on walls. It saddens her. The home is a fractured dream. Malhotra tries again. Mem Saab? He turns to whisper to the likely pair. She is a most troubled woman, you know, he says behind a cupped hand. Sister does not. Malhotra! Malhotra! It is a shrill, cutting voice. Hamita has always imagined the goddess Kali would sound as she comes to judge. Malhotra shudders. Sister wastes no time and darts towards the voice. Malhotra tries to restrain her, but Mita steps between them and gives him a look reserved for customers who overstep their bounds. Sister, inside the doorway, stands in apparent shock. The room is plunged in darkness, owing to thick curtains blocking out daylight. In the centre of the room is a giant TV. Sharmilaji sits entranced in its changing light. She turns, her jaw drops. What are you doing here? Sharmiraji snaps, shouting over the volume. Turn this racket down, sister orders. Now! Sharmiraji is stunned, but fiddles with the remote control. The volume plummets. We're here for him. We've seen him. We know you're hiding him. Mita watches Sharmiraji from across the room. The woman, under a blanket, moves with a certain clumsiness. Some form of illness or inebriation? Maybe under the effects of the drugs Manoj provided her. She still seems distracted by the movements on the screen, an old Bollywood film by the looks of things. Mita watches from the corner of her eye and gasps. The woman dancing and singing in the old film resembles this woman. Sharmiliji is none other than Sharmila Gulzar. Sister goes over to the curtains and lets in the light. Sharmila Gulzar, famed movie actress, screams. You are not answering, sister declares. You must answer. Sharmila Gulzar screams again. Malhotra hides his face in his hands. Not good, not good, he mutters. Finally, it is Mita who speaks into the cacophony. Mem Sharmila Gulzar? I didn't recognize you at first. The invoking of her name is an incantation. Sharmila Gulzar is transformed. No longer the scraggly-haired woman in nightclothes transfixed by the past. She is composed, regal even. You are my most favorite star, na? Yes, to be in the presence of the Bengali Rose. What an honour! Sister is annoyed. Excuse me, what is this you are saying? Mita shoots her a look that speaks loudly. Shut up! May I approach Sharmila ji? 
Meeta does anyway, touching the woman's knobby feet. I'm your mostest, biggest fan. The woman combs her hair with her fingers, sits up straight. Sister cannot abide this wasting of time. She taps the window frame and looks out the large bay window and out at the grounds. The two dogs appear at play, pawing at one of the pool house doors. I have wondered what it would be like to be a star, Mita says. To have a life like yours, your dance scene in sunset sunrise under the pouring rain, inspired me to become a dancer. The old woman smiles. Mita struggles with this woman's reality. They are here because Sharmila Gulzar is likely harboring Ram's killer, who is her lover and enabler of her drug addiction. Her world seems empty. Mita continues plying her with compliments and praise. So was Arjun Mahajan really as handsome in real life? You know that hair of his, fake. He started balding by our first picture together. It was all gone by our third. He was a very angry man. Sharmila pauses, staring at her younger self on screen as she belts out a muted song. Malhotra, my breakfast! She cries suddenly. Right away, Memsa, breakfast is coming. What stories you must have, Mita says dreamily. I've lived well, that's for sure. Look at me! Sharmila Guzar says, without irony. Just some girl from Calcutta, born to average parents, living a life like this. Do suitors still call? Sister asks. Sharmila Gulzar smiles. A few. Sister steps closer. I remember meeting you not three days ago. Do you remember me? I meet so many fans. It's been a long week with all my engagements. It was out near Wazirabad Road, on the way to the electric gats. What were you doing there? Sharmila shrugs, passing through. Malhotra enters with a tray of Western food. Toast, pork sausage, a hard-boiled egg standing in a cup, and places it on the woman's lap. All conversation stops. Despite the room's air conditioning, he is sweating profusely. Bon appétit, he says in the continental manner before scurrying off. Do you happen to know a young man named Ram? Sharmila Gulzar cracks the eggshell with her spoon. What about a Manoj? I've known many, she nibbles her toast. Is there a Manoj here? Of course not. A sip of chai. Mita and sister agree with each other silently. Her answers about Manoj ring with truth. Mita rises and stands next to sister, facing away from the woman and out the window. They witness Malhotra go out to the pool house, slip into the door the dogs were pawing at. There isn't time for this, sister mutters to Mita. Mita nods. Malhotra exits the building and ties the dogs away from the pool house. He starts the ambassador. Leave it to me, Mita says. Would you excuse me, Ment Sahib? Sister asks. I need to step out into the hall. Pressing business. The woman gives her a regal wave. Sharmila ji, Mita says, turning around. I'm so worried for you. 
the police are coming they will disrupt your life i can see the newspaper headlines hear the tv people all of the horrible things to be said about you your legacy will be forever tainted the woman sits still her fork raised to her mouth what do you mean she finally says you have a drug problem many do no shame there but the police will use this to take advantage of you only we can help you have manoj here ah no need to protest we know it you know it tell us where he is we can rid of him before these bad very bad police arrive the woman falls into histrionics throwing her tray to the floor tears leap from her eyes get out get out you destroyer you're just another one of my enemies meeta looks over her shoulder malhotra is distracted fussing with something in the car's boot sister is creeping towards the pull house door despite her efforts to shush them the dogs begin barking malhotra looking up sees her and begins to flail his arms madly as he rushes to intercept her that's all meeta can handle you're mad she shouts over her shoulder to sharmila as she runs to sister's aid out of the living room out the front door into the sun she runs with abandon she sees sister throw open the doorway but has her gaze fixed on malhotra he aims all manner of punjabi curses at sister meeta aims herself at malhotra until contact she gives him a sharp shoulder and they both go tumbling to the ground adrenaline forces meeta back up she sees sister stepping forward into the pool house's dark with her hand held to her mouth shanti she calls shanti be careful be care meeta finds sister on the ground cradling a young man a young man without a scar a young man who is not manoj a young man who is ram this has been a dispatch publishing production of little flower written by ted oswald and performed by zara jane nakwi text copyright 2017 by ted oswald music by kevin macleod used by permission if you have enjoyed this production please consider rating and reviewing this audiobook at audible.com and on goodreads.com